Hello everybody, welcome back to a anniversary edition of Bald Move Prestige. We're talking about the 50th anniversary of Mean Streets, released in 1973, is directed by one Martin Scorsese, uh, a, a young, little-known director at the time. Uh, it was written by him with an assist by Mardik Martin, who also helped him write New York, New York, and Raging Bull. It stars Harvey Keitel, who for the longest time was just Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so funny going through some of these older movies like, oh, shit, these people had whole ass careers before <laughs> I discovered them in the 90s. Oh, my God. Harvey Keitel, a tough guy. Who knew? Uh, you can see him in Copland, Reservoir Dogs, Wise Guys. He started in six Scorsese films, including The Irishman, uh, spanning all over Martin's career. A uh, movie also stars Robert De Niro, uh, who, man, at this point, his career was just primed to explode. Um, he had been working for like five, six, seven years in Hollywood. But after this movie, the next six years, he's going to do The Godfather Part Two, Taxi Driver, The Deer Hunter, and Raging Bull. Holy shit, nice. what a pair. Yeah. Uh, De Niro has been on 10 different films with Martin Scorsese, including the latest that's that's upcoming uh, this week, right? No, next week, Killers in the Flower Moon. It's got David Provel, who, again, I only knew from UHF. <laughs> the tough guy. Uh, uh, hey, you know what they say? Broads don't belong in broadcasting guy. Uh, turns out he had a whole <laughs> other career before he showed up in UHF. Uh, he's also in Shawshank's Redemption. He shows up th- uh, in The Sopranos. And uh, the other only recognizable person or who was not just a personal friend of Scorsese or, and went on to do other things is David Carradine, who plays a drunk that gets mm-hmm. assassinated by his brother, Robert Carradine. This film was... Uh, interesting experience to to watch because I, I I kept on thinking this must have been the Pulp Fiction of its day, just weird, wild, rough and wooly, patently illegal characters careening around, uh, getting into all kinds of trouble. Uh, narrative plot not necessarily as important as vibes. Um. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought it was really, I mean, and and like Pulp Fiction, there's a lot of problematic views being expressed by these characters because they're, they're poor and they're ignorant. Uh, I, 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 but it was, it's fascinating to see how much of like Martin Scorsese's shtick is in this movie. What'd you think of it? Oh yeah, no, I agree. Um, this is, I I almost don't even want to say like a proto Scorsese movie because it's got so much of what makes his movies his movies in it um do you want to run it down like what are the big bullet points here what are the big scorsese i mean the the setting obviously you know it's supposed to be new york it's supposed to be the mean streets it's supposed to be these uh gangster and gangster affiliated guys uh you know just trying to get by right trying to make it in a tough world and that's like a huge part of his whole ouvre I have no idea how to say that word. Uh, But also his style is in there too, his cinematic style. Um, There's a lot of things that are rough and raw about that cinematic style in this early work um, that will go on to later be very refined. Like I look at some of the work he's doing with 
strapping cameras to people or locking focus on moving subjects, uh, which he'll do, you know, to great effect in like Goodfellas later. And it's way more refined in Goodfellas, but it's here in this movie and it's it's evidence of the filmmaker that we're going to see over the next 50 years. And it's so funny, like some of this was not necessarily intentional style, but like mother of necessity, because this is essentially guerrilla filmed. Uh, it was mm-hmm. not a union mm-hmm. shoot. He was constantly on the run from Teamsters. They didn't have time to like set down tracks for dolly shots and properly track. So it was all very just handheld. It's so funny because anytime you're walking down the streets in New York, it's 99% of people that are on film have no idea they're being filmed. And it's funny to watch all the civilians <laughs> uh-huh. like, like like look right into the camera like what the fuck as like yeah, Robert yeah. Dinner is walking down the street um but but yeah like but he kept that kind of like loose improvisational style even as the budget ex- ex- exploded or, or you mm-hmm. know got got bigger for him yeah it became a signature of his um that and and th- there are some other things that i see in this that i'm like okay that'll in a later movie, he might have done it this way, right? Like, I, I look at the captions uh, telling you the character names, and I'm like, he probably would have freeze-framed that in a later movie. Uh, give, give you a second, with maybe a voiceover, right, talking about the character. He's he's not quite gotten the style down, but he knows sort of what he's going for. And that stuff was really interesting to see. Yeah, and there's like just the themes, like uh, the religiosity, the conflict yep. between your mm-hmm. faith and your uh, morals, and the things you got to do to earn a living. Uh, the idea that two, there's two male star guys, one who's kind of level-headed, respected, has a future, one who is caught in a self-destructive spiral. Uh, there's a woman mm-hmm. that is um, impediment to the man's success in the world because of, in this case, just truly bizarre bizarre reasonings about you know why she wasn't good enough for him um it his mother makes yeah. a cameo appearance uh, you know she's she stops by at the at one point in a, in a hallway scene uh but yeah so I, much of the stuff is... that I, I was thinking that like when i went back because i had no idea this is essentially i guess the first film that he made that was like all on his own you know that was you know that, that he kind of conceived um is the first time he wrote De Niro worked with De Niro I was expecting it not to feel like a Scorsese movie mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. felt Scorsese as fuck man yeah um and I, sure. I was I was really impressed by that yeah um and I, I feel like it has you know a very strong theme of like sin and guilt and um is it's stuff that uh, he has a lot in his movies, but it's usually not as pronounced, uh, at least in my view. I I see it as sort of a background layer behind all these colorful characters who are doing these crazy things. In this movie, it's very front and center. I mean, there are scenes where we stop just to appreciate how guilty this character feels, how responsible this character feels for other people, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I remember this is something... Um, I think I've talked about it in a couple of Martin Scorsese podcasts, but... Um... Or movie podcast that I saw with Rod because Roger Ebert and him, you know, uh, a lot of simpatico. It's so funny to hear Roger Ebert's like it's a, you know the, he always talks about the pre-Vatican two days, the pre-Vatican like back when the Catholic Church actually really preached hellfire and brimstone. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But he mentioned that like I think it was around the Passion of the Christ era that uh, that that the Scorsese had mentioned in an interview that he honestly believes that he's going to go to hell, like mm-hmm. he believes that he is bound for hell, and. 
you kind of get an idea of what that means to him in this film because there's something that the, the the Harvey Keitel character Charlie does throughout where he meditates on like what the nuns told him about like you know the fires of hell is like a thousand times worse than you know a literal fire and it's eternal and it's this and that and like he, mm-hmm. he every time he sees an open flame in a film he like holds his hand over to feel like what that's get a taste just get a yeah, taste yeah. and you can see that like he can't he can't handle it no one could right yeah not even for a couple of seconds but yet he also recognizes that the religious angle of like going and get absolution and forgiveness of your sins and all that stuff is like bullshit right so he's he's caught priest (laughs) element it's yeah and i i thought it's um I saw asserted. I can't remember if this was. I read a lot of reviews, a lot of, a lot of contemporary reviews. I read, a, I read a lot of retrospectives. Roger Ebert did one of both, and I think it was one of his reviews where he put out that like the reason that Charlie tries so hard to save Johnny is that he is transposing his need for personal salvation onto another person. So it's like I can't save myself, mm. but if I can save this other person, then that's like. Because it's, man, that's something I also really identified with the, the you know, because I, you know, I, I think that there's like certain, there's something that the, the, the Ebert wrote in his review that like he felt a real kinship to Scorsese. Why? You know, this guy grew up in a New York City neighborhood. I grew in, you know, downstate Illinois. How in the, what in the fucking world could you guys have in common? Well, they had the the Catholic upbringing and the working class backgrounds. And part and parcel mm-hmm. of if you grew up in a working class background, some of your friends just ain't going to make it, man. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, like there's way too many people being born and way too little economic opportunity going. Uh, and like some of your friends are going to get lost to drug addiction. They're going to get lost to mental illness and homelessness. They're just going to get there's going to for whatever reason act you know and 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 confronted with that lack of opportunity they're going to get nihilistic and they're going to get they're going to get self-destructive and like i mm-hmm. really identified with this the, the the these type of roles of like really caring like growing up with a guy that you really care about and like seeing them kind of slide off into bad bad territory and like when do you cut ties you know sure uh yeah Hopefully, before bullets know. start flying. <laughs> yeah, hopefully before you get shot in the neck. I, I don't know. If, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I will talk about it later. But yeah, questions around the end of this movie. Um, I've, like I said, I, I I was impressed by how modern the film felt. You know, it, it feels like yeah, it, yeah. it felt it felt really like. Um, honestly, like if I'm comparing it to Pulp Fiction, which I think it compares favorably to, it feels way, a way more polished version of that than like Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs is a less polished version of Mean Streets and and Pulp Fiction. So I think it's, it's yeah. I, I think that other than just a truly horrifying opinions that these gentlemen are expressing in terms of like uh, phys, uh, physical disabilities, uh, race, sexuality, gender uh religion uh everything else is going to feel like extraordinarily like modern in its filmmaking and like its storytelling the soundtrack movies that you know tarantino is calling back to right i mean this new hollywood era where you've got just a lot of experimentation and change in the types of stories that are being told and the ways they're being told uh scorsese's right at the front of that you know um and it is different. I, I feel like 
I don't know. Maybe I, if we didn't have the new Hollywood era and movies were still made the way they were in the 50s and 60s or like early 60s, I would feel differently about this. But I feel like I owe my movie watching uh, desire, I guess, a compulsion to this era of Hollywood because it changed fundamentally the style of filmmaking. And I find this stuff fascinating where we're just sort of put into a scene with some people and see what they do. You know, it's it's not even necessarily like trying to tell you too much about these characters. It's just letting you be with them and figure out who they are through that. And that stuff is exciting to me. And and you uh, and can that- see that all over Tarantino's work. And then the the lack of a, a moral point of view from the film itself, like the sure, film. or even a love for for this, right? Like for, yeah. for these, these less than desirable people. Yeah, I feel like that's that's um, you know if you go back another ten years, it's harder to find films that are this kind of like you know negative in views in terms of like systemic things uh like showing open yeah police it's all corruption cops and robbers and, bullshit right like cops yeah, are good the robbers and, are bad yeah 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 um yeah like i said i did the soundtrack another one it's like very golden oldies heavy because this is set oh, yeah. in like the the early 60s in new york but i like that shit that's a shit i grew up listening to in my parents car um and apparently that wasn't done in this era like this is one of the movies that was sort of a landmark moment for you could just like needle drop from pop culture and yeah yeah uh i i and it it kind when you think about it it sort of makes sense right like how was he able with this shoestring budget to license all these fairly big songs you know songs that are recognizable to this day uh and it's because there wasn't really a structure in place. There wasn't a system where you go to the studios and say, okay, well, we got this price list. Here's what we can get for this amount of money. It was just like, he, he did it. He went he went and got these rights, but they were like super cheap because nobody did this shit, right? The studios right. didn't know what it was worth. We didn't know what to they charge. They didn't know what the value so, was, you know? Yeah, yeah, these record companies. So, I mean, I... I, I don't know if you can make a, bu- a a budget movie like this with such a low budget nowadays and have the same level of needle drops. Uh, what else do we want to say before we get into kind of like the spoiler, you know, the detailed kind of like uh, notes and observations on the film? Uh, I I really like Harvey Keitel in this. Uh, like you, I, I I only knew him as the wolf from Pulp Fiction before this. But there's, he, he's not in wolf mode here. He's not the guy who's like got all his shit just on lock and knows exactly no. what to do in every situation. He's the guy who's trying to figure it out. And it feels right for, you know, this young Harvey Keitel. Uh, but I, I was super impressed with him in the lead. It's Maybe also... even more so than De Niro. I feel like he's got a more polished thing that he's doing De... in this movie than De Niro does. De Niro is still figuring himself out in this. I was about to say it's re- one of the pleasures of this movie is just watching Robert De Niro in the background because he is trying to do so much, too much. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, like he never, and it's, some of this is, I guess you'd say it's admirable. You know, he's trying to find, you know, this in- inherit 
thing that makes his character tri- tw- and and his thing was he's just twitchy you know he's just yeah. always like you mm-hmm. know adjusting his lapel and kind of jerking his neck and and tugging at his ear and and uh you know just like and it's like it, it is it is I, I kept on kind of like seeing it especially in like the pool hall scene it's like man this mm-hmm. is just he's trying he's trying too hard because you've always seen you know robert de niro usually he's very calm and he's in control yeah. Um, well, or if he's flying off the handle, it's, you know, there's, 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 there's some kind of structure to it. And this is just like, he's just throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks. Uh, and, and yeah, yeah, compared to Harvey Keitel, who is still the same kind of guy, he's not Mr. Wolf. He's not the guy in a suit with the deadpan expression and just kind of idling in a performance because that's the place in his career where he's just cool. It's like mm-hmm. Harvey Keitel's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie is why he is cast as Mr. Wolf, right? Sure, uh, sure. It's one of the things he gets in there, yeah. But he's not Mr. Wolf. It's like, uh, you know, comparing Al Pacino in his hua era to Al Pacino in The Godfather. They're just, they're they just they they were really trying and holding honing their craft back then. It's just really fun seeing, especially Robert De Niro just as a kid fucking around. Uh, I yeah, thought I'd seen thing. some raw, I... unpolished De Niro before when we've seen some of the uh-huh. earlier stuff, like Taxi right. Driver and Raging Bull. But holy shit! Yeah, and it's still there, right? You can tell. You can see yes. the guy who's going to grow into uh, the casino role, or you know, like Godfather Two. Any of those, you can see like there, there's a hint of danger to this guy. There's a there's a seriousness about him, and that's the thing that that is lacking here. And it, you know, the role demands it. I, I don't want to say like De Niro's not bringing that. But I never take Johnny Johnny Boy seriously in this movie. He's always just kind of a fuck up and a liar and a loser. And like, yeah. in future Robert De Niro roles, you always have to take him seriously. And I feel like that's the part that he finds later is where he can be not just an angry, violent guy, but a guy you gotta you have to reckon with. Otherwise, yeah. it's gonna come back on you. Because that's what I think uh, what what made the De Niro performance work is that like, you know, I, I was thinking back about all the times, you know, I, I talked, I've had friends um, that I've lost. I've had it's I, I'm old enough now to have friends I've lost and I've like 10, 15 years later come back in my life and they've gone through this and they've gone through that. And they're, you know, they've, they've emerged on the other side. They've gone out of jail or whatever. And it's like, wow. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've ever had like one of those guys that like, you know, I, I was afraid for, but I was afraid of. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. De Niro, it's like not only is he completely out of line and he's doing insane shit, but like you, it doesn't feel safe to call him out on it. He he's just a dangerous yeah. guy. He's drunkenly firing guns down city blocks, and it's not just like he's like, but it's you know, sloppy. It's not in control at all, right? And he's just, and that's he's the thing just, that's missing. And there's always just kind of like if I. What he's doing is not optimal, but if I try to do get him to do anything else, it might even go worse. But he's going to act out to prove that he's, and it's just, it's very stressful. I, Robert mm-hmm. De Niro mm-hmm. and his like, and I guess like this is like I'm I'm getting this, but all compulsive gamblers. I just last month watched Uncut Gems finally. Okay, and it's one of the most stressful things I've ever seen in my whole fucking life. This guy trying to stay one step ahead of all the things, all the bets he's got, all the irons in the fire. And this guy's like wealthy, you know, he's like pissing away. And then huh. uh, the other end of the scale is a guy who is spending money he doesn't have. Yeah. And it's just goddamn gamble is gambling might be even worse than drug addiction. Because like uh, maybe. there's only so much heroin you can put in your body. 
Yeah. It's like a, a casino will take every bit of money that you have and will have in the future and don't have in your house. And like, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I go back and forth. Um, but yeah, this is he's just he's terrifying. And you're thinking like every time I'm thinking, well, if I was Harvey Cattell, I'd do this or that. Man, I don't know. Because what, what do you do about a guy like De Niro? Yeah. Yeah. Johnny boy. I don't know, man. You you direct his energy where you can, I guess. It's the best you can do. The the scene that really got me thinking about it in those terms was that scene where he's just threatened Michael with the gun and they got to leave town and Harvey Keitel's trying to get him in the car and this stupid song is playing on the radio and he's out there just dancing. Just like he doesn't have a care in the world. He won't get he in the freaking car, and and you just have to wait for that. You have to wait for him to stop being amused by the thing he's doing, and and get back on track himself. Yeah, you just kind of have yeah. to wait him out. Yeah, and I kept on wondering, like, because I, I I kept on thinking that, like, well, he's just he just wants to die or he doesn't care. He doesn't value his own he life. He doesn't care. His, yeah. He doesn't see any way out of his situation. Uh, the gambling and the excitement and the girls are the things that he kind of lives for. And if he dies and he just doesn't, just doesn't give a fuck. But also there's an element of like him being delusional. Like, Oh, my best friend is mobbed up. So all, all I can yep. get is any unlimited trouble that I want. And he can just go to his uncle and he'll fix it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, you see from Harvey Keitel's angle where, like, no, that's not how he this is going at that. all. His yeah. his uncle is saying, like, you need to get ditched this guy. He's he's a boat anchor around you. You need to – do you need help? Do you need, like, help? Kind of, like, you know, uh-huh. getting rid of this. Yeah. And every single time, De Niro is like, I don't understand. Why don't you just talk to my uncle? And he's like, it's just not – it's not going to happen, John. It's like it's – like, it's not because Harvey Keitel's being a jerk. It's because he's kind of already done every single thing he could do for him at that point. And it's now mm-hmm. it's just he's just desperately trying to keep his friend alive. And yeah, I mean, yeah, it's scary because like, you know, the answer of like, well, when when do you cut when do you cut ties with a, a lifelong friend that's like in this like Drano cycle? And it's like hopefully before they kill themselves and you. Um, sure. Uh-huh. We'll be right back with more bald move after this brief pause. Here's what's new and premium content for our club members. No lunch this week, as I'll be traveling on vacation, but get ready for next week when we have the rare, elusive, dare I say premium lunch with Talitha and Aaron. And while you're waiting for the return of the king, don't forget May is the time to switch your Patreon tiers to make sure you maintain your full benefits by June. Stop by support.ballmove.com to check your Patreon levels to see the new benefits and decide which one is right for you. And finally, tickets are now on sale for Badass Fest 6. Come meet us live and in person, watch a mystery badass film with us, and then hear us record the podcast right there in front of you in a theater packed with Bald Move fans. Get your details and your tickets at baldmove.com slash live. If you want more Bald Move in your life, head over to support.baldmove.com right now to find out how you can get tons of bonus audio and video content plus ad-free feeds.
Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcast on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. And now, back with more Bald Move. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get too spoilery. Um, I don't know what I can say that I feel like I've, uh, if you've listened this far, it's like, I don't need to, you, you know, you, we've, we've given you the non-spoiler. These, this is a, mm-hmm. this is an inflection point in the life of two men. There's a guy who's kind of like a mob associate on the inside track to being a made man. He's not made, right? Harvey Keitel. No, I don't think so. He's, but he's kind of, you know, the, there's a family opening its books, and he, he's probably got the fast track in there. He's got, he's got an in with the capo, and uh, but his lifelong friend Johnny, who can't hold a job and can't pay his debts, and presumes that his connection with his friend, who is kind of mobbed up, is going to allow him to just act in outrageous ways. Um, and uh there's a there's a love there's a love story where there's a there's an illicit love between Harvey Keitel and and Johnny's cousin um that's interesting and uh yeah it's it's basically uh Harvey Keitel is on the crazy train with Johnny and mm-hmm. what stop is he going to get off on yeah uh I, I, it's it's funny because like I didn't know anything about this movie other than it was like the first collaboration De Niro and it's interesting because like I'm always I was I was like it was 30 minutes where I was kept on wondering like it, when the, there's going to be something more these plots are going to connect as they're showing like Harvey Cattell like you know um, you know picking up picking up takes and they got Robert De Niro blowing up mailboxes. And I'm like, is he part of some kind of leftist group that's protest? No, he's just blowing up mailboxes and, and doing crazy shit. Yeah. But like 30 minutes in the movie, I'm like, Oh, this is the story of Robert De Niro just being a crazy man. There's no, yeah, he's not totally. working on a secret mission. He's not traumatized from the Korean war. <laughs> he's just nope. a crazy asshole. Uh, and yeah. I did. It's like, and then I'm like, oh, and the, there is no point to any of these scenes in like the first two thirds of the movie. They're just showing you what it's like to have an evening with Charlie and Johnny here and the trouble that those people get into. And yeah, uh, and that's a kind of a hallmark of, you know, Scorsese stuff. Uh, like, what's the point? Well, the point is to get to know these people. It's it's about the characters. It's about the people. I mean, that, that's the thing that always comes through in Scorsese's movies is he has a he has a love for these people, right? Um, whether it's, he grew up with these people, these are his friends. Yeah, and family. I mean, this is his family. Yeah, um, warts and all. Mm-hmm. Literally, it, his mom's in his movies. 
Yeah, and in a lot of his movies, and his dad too. Uh, but they're they're just slice of life movies for the most part, and it's such an interesting window into uh, an interesting group of people that I don't know. I find it fascinating uh, always when Scorsese puts up a movie. Right down to, you know, the Irishman and probably like Killers of the Flower Moon here in a bit. Um, but I, I, I don't know. This this movie, it has that same love for the people in it, even though there's a lot of people in here who are tough to love. There's a f- scene that I thought was hilarious. And it's like, I think one of the best parts of the movie where it's the the, uh, the pool hall brawl. Oh and yeah, how yeah. that great. starts off as like trying to collect the debt and Charlie's trying to play it cool and Johnny's not and then there's this line where it's like the beef is settled it's like all right let's have a drink and mm-hmm. the guy that they're trying to collect from is is like he's kind of he's he's I guess Martin Scorsese's personal friend and he's just kind of doing this as a favor uh but he plays like a like a surly John Candy he's a big dude sure and you know there's this line where it's like let's just all have a drink and then this that like bearing the hatchet leads to the biggest brawl like just Mm -hmm. just breaks out this giant sprawl where just john candy dudes like fighting four dudes at once and robert de niro breaks a pool stick and goes to the high ground on a pool table and is like whipping all comers and then the fucking cops come and they shake mm-hmm. Charlie down over having a Swiss army knife. And there's this whole thing. And then like, and this has been going on for like 20 minutes and you're back to like, you know, the cops and everybody's sobered up and it's like, okay, you know, that got out of hand. Hey, you know, uh, yeah, I didn't mean any of that. Let's like, let's, let's have those drinks we want to have. And 10 seconds later, the brawl immediately reignites. It's yeah, just love it. It's the best scene it's, in the movie, in my opinion. It's so funny. And it's be, and, it, and what's funny is, like, there's something true there, too, that, like, this John Candy character has correctly identified something about Robert De Niro's character. He's just a mook. He's yeah. just, there's nothing for him, man. And, mm-hmm. like, he's speaking the truth, the power, and it gets him in, it gets him into trouble. But sure. He's 100% hey. right. Doesn't like hearing that. Uh, I love that knife. That knife kills me, man. That tiny pocket knife. Blade can't be longer than an inch. Yeah. And, you know, this cop's going to hassle him for it. And I don't know if he's trying to hassle the bribe out of him, but, you know, the car fare, right? The car fare bribe. It's so hilarious right. to me. But it's a great scene because it's so funny. Um, And it's funny based on all the personalities involved. So, like, the cops... Yes. You know, he's hassling over this tiny little knife, and then uh, the John Candy type guy you were talking about is like, "All right, well, let's let me let me get you some car fare, get you back home, or whatever." I know it took. And this some guy was just out choking out the guy who is accosted with the knife by the cops, and now uh-huh, he's uh-huh. like trying to play the good Samaritan, yeah, he's trying to save him. Yep. Yeah, because uh, he's and, and he whips out his his wad right, and he's like, "Okay, peeling off a couple of bills and." He's like, well, where'd you come from? He's like, oh, I came from New Jersey. Yeah, right. That's probably, this will probably get you back home. He's like, I'm going to Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, I came from the, <laughs> but I'm going to Philly. So, yeah. yeah, it's. It's such a good line. And then, yeah. you know, he peels off a few more bills. Um, yeah, it's a great scene. It's a great scene. Um, I know a lot of this is improvised. I don't know how much of it is improvised. Like, is that Philadelphia line improvised? Uh, is that in the script? I'd love to see a script to this. I, I probably should have looked one up. Yeah, because I got the idea that improvise meant something different back then, where it's like, you know, more about it was how to pretty much it. the same dialogue, but it's like takes on it, you know, the yeah, fact yeah, that yeah. you would, uh, 
you, you know, you might give like seven different takes on something because it didn't seem like people are just mm-hmm. like making up dialogue and whatnot. Um, but but yeah, I, I agree. I would love to tell. see what this. Yeah, what this script actually. And, and the fights and there's a couple things where it's like. Um, I guess the guy who plays Michael and uh, really didn't get along with De Niro. And there's huh. this, like, in the climax of the movie, it's De Niro just insulting this guy in an outrageous ways. Like, the mm-hmm. whole plot is built like that that this guy owes Michael, and Michael's been very patient, and Michael is mobbed up, and Michael is about, like, I, the only reason I'm broken this guy's legs right now is because you, he's your friend, Charlie, and I respect you, and I respect your uncle. And De Niro shows up. This has been building this whole movie, and he shows up with only thirty bucks. Mm-hmm. And well, he shows up Char- with eight bucks. Charlie gives him twenty two. So there's to get, something like that to make a like respectable the, offer to the, to Michael. And, yeah. and he shows up an hour and a half late to the meeting, and 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 this guy's gone ahead and like gone out for a smoke or something. In the space that Charlie goes to get him off the street and bring him back, De Niro bought a round of drinks for everyone, and he's that got ten dollars left. Yep. And the guy is essentially like, you know, $30 is already insulting. I was going to take it for Charlie's sake, but now you bring me 10 And and Charlie's kind of like, you know, yeah, like explain yourself. Like, you know, come correct. And De Niro just lay, starts laying into this guy about how much he doesn't respect him and he's a jack off. And that's mm-hmm. Pulls apparently yeah. Scorsese just had them do take after take after take and encouraging De Niro to come up with like more and more insults and use their dislike of each other to kind of fuel that scene and you can kind of feel it uh uh-huh the 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 trivia said that like i guess the cast and crew got borderline uncomfortable with like scorsese's like yeah again you know yeah getting that tell me he's a jerk off again robert or bobby come on and egging (laughs) him on Uh uh-huh and it just it, it just it just works and I think that's the kind of like improvisation, you know, not that gotcha. like, oh, this is a whole scene we made up. But like, yeah, Bobby, you tell me he's a jerk off. Now let's say something mean about his mother. <laughs> yeah, there, there's an example of that earlier in the movie, too, where it's actually the first scene we re- meet Robert De Niro's character, Johnny Boy. He walks in with a couple of girls and he's having the time of his life, you know, uh, he walks into this this club and he's trying to get everybody drinks and. Charlie sees that he already owes a ton of money, right? And Charlie sees him like spin flashing out, and he's like, "Let's talk in the back room." I, I you and me, let's go. Uh, and De Niro's like trying to look good in front of these girls, and so he plays a tough guy for a second, and he's like pretending like he doesn't understand him. You know the what scene, right? He he says what about twelve times in a row there, and I felt like this this might be imp- improvised too, where. De Niro and Keitel just kind of like have a, a patter here for a, a minute or two because it's pretty indulgent I will say I, I think like th- this is something that Scorsese does he wants you to get to know these people and this world and how they interact with each other but that scene is, feels a little bit indulgent yeah, and there's it's there's a lot of I just realized there's a big connection with the Irishman, which is like you know Jimmy Hoffa how delusional he was about you know it's like yeah he's got a level of respect and this and that but he's also like let it gone to his head and there's a lot mm-hmm. of similarities like the mafiosas and actually this is this is very much Scorsese this is like that uh, happens tons of times happens in casino happens in Goodfellas where you have these scenes of mafiosas like would you straighten your friend out. 
because, mm-hmm. hey, we respect him and love him and I know blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, he can't be acting like this. And, you know, the character goes back and says, look, man, you can't be acting like this. And the guy's like, ah, fuck that guy. He's just saying that because he doesn't like my style. He doesn't like. Yeah. And it's like, you know, playing that old game as a kid where you had the shark with the balloon in its mouth and you just keep on turning the dial and you know it's going to explode, but you don't know when. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. I it's funny because like I kind of thought that they were going to get off scot free, right? Um, because they like I, I was thinking like is this going to be the Scorsese like he like learns that like you know like he he this is like a too false of an ending. They're going to go upstate New York and and you know like they just like leave New York and flames behind them and then just when they think they're safe they get they get drove by they get they get drove by on yeah yeah i guess i expected a longer conclusion a longer climax to this movie uh but boy once it once it starts to peak it just peaks and get out, gets out it's like not interested in having them hide out for a while and be paranoid looking around every corner they're just going to have which Michael explores drive good up and fellas, right him. Like yeah, like the last third uh-huh. of Goodfellas is just Henry being a paranoid fucking coked That's out what I expected. lunatic. Yeah, like uh-huh. but but they didn't. It this ends like one of those driver's ed films, like Blood on the Streets. It's just like totally. Yeah, De Niro gets shot in the face. Uh, Kaitel gets shot in the arm. They wreck. They almost he almost gets his girl killed. Uh, and it's just like. De Niro kind of runs off. There's an a, there's a hint that the cops might get him. Yeah, he goes into an alley. Does does De Niro die in this movie? Because he gets like shot in the neck and he's he leaking does. a lot of blood and he goes he off in this alley. But there's like there's like red and blue lights flashing at the end. So I think the like yeah. he's either. I, I, but yeah, he's probably going to be dead in jail or in critical care. Right. Yeah. One of those three for sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's like, yeah, what happens? What? Uh, yeah. What, what, what happens, happens after, after that? This? I mean, does he go to his uncle does charlie go to his uncle and the uncle's just like i told you so you're you're cut out like it is interesting because a lot of scorsese's later works like you know goodfellas casino i think have the this 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 car crash moment but then it lingers with the heroes to see what happens you know like what was the fallout from this and follows it to like you know uh, joe pesci getting his brains beat out in a cornfield in kansas or Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. henry going into witness protection and being just a regular jerk off and and this it's just like nah like they he he got you to this point with the characters and this was like a it's a morality play you know, like Scorsese yeah, can step the at the end. It's like, now paid. look here, kids. If you don't watch watch Bad Association, spoil useful habits, kind of. <laughs> God. Uh, yeah, there was a price deal. to be paid, and this was it. And that's all the movie cared about. And and I think, like, you know, it ties in nicely with the themes of hell, right? Like, our, <laughs> do you think Charlie's going to hell after this? Was he able to... to do enough to keep himself out of hell. Was he able to uh, pre-Vatican to do his to penance hell in the or post-Vatican? Because I gotta know. I got a yeah, post-Vatican. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know about that. I. I assume, uh, although I guess it's like there's the uh, idea that he might get scared straight, settle down with this nice girl. Maybe, maybe he wants that restaurant he, though. I thought it was wild how they tra- treated because for a long time I'm like, why? What's wrong with this girl? And yeah. it turns out yeah. she's an epileptic, and I guess the ma like did, did 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 they did they just not truck with disabled people? They didn't. They don't truck with a lot of things. 
things. That's true. The mom has this some is prejudices. True. Uh, but yeah, it seems like it, or at least at the very least, the uncle doesn't. Right? Like that might be a personal view. But yeah, he he says she's got something wrong with her head. Yeah, her mind. Like, yeah, her, he he thinks like, she's like mad or whatever. When yeah, she really just has epilepsy. Yeah. So. Uh. I don't know. It's it's weakness, right? Maybe that's what the mob doesn't like. It's it's something that can't be relied on. What is the point of David Carradine's execution? Did that connect, or is that just something that just kind of parachutes into the is story? It, is it foreshadowing? Like, I I don't remember exactly why he's executed. So so yeah, the uncle okay. has a business associate Mario, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Who sends what is it his son mario sends his son to kill david carradine see i'm not saying i did guy i did not follow it i literally did not understand it's really inconsequential unless it's thematically tied to johnny boy and charlie right i think so like in the context of this um charlie's trying to keep the night going because De Niro's in a bad place and uh, they've all had, the, you know, this is them coming back from the um, the pool hall scene, uh, which I, I, I forgot. The, my favorite part of that is like when the fourth, when the third brawl broke out, like you hear above the phrase, this guy say, fuck yous all like he's. <laughs> Like he's so he's so over it, and they're all kind mm-hmm. of bummed out. And like the guy's like, we should close. And it's like, ah, hey, there's still people. We're not going to close as long as there's still people. Like he, he he's being a, a dick. And the idea of like if they had just gone home and went to bed, everything would have been okay. But because like there's a scene, there's a sad scene where Charlie's trying to get a card game going so that De Niro can kind mm-hmm. of like get back into the game, and nobody will, you know, like like he owes everyone money, so nobody wants to get in that game, and things mm-hmm. kind of get worse and worse, and then suddenly a murder breaks out, and they have to cheese it, you know, before the cops get there. I, maybe it's just yeah. like, yeah, like flashing red lights, like you should, uh, you 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 should be working this hard for this guy, maybe. Yeah, or, or I mean, maybe the David Carradine character, who's just labeled drunk uh, in the credits, is 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 like you know a a stand-in for what's going to happen to De Niro later. Um, yeah, the flashing red lights. It's it's supposed to be connected to say, okay, this guy also has debts, and like now they're coming, the chickens are coming home to roost, kind of thing. Uh, what? Let's talk about the tiger scene. Well, I, I want to talk a lot more about that scene because okay, I, I yeah. really love that scene too. The the killing of David Carradine's character is way more realistic than than most shootings you see in movies, right? Like this dude is just massively drunk, uh, can mm-hmm. barely stand up to pee at the urinal, right, in the bathroom, and he gets shot in the back like twice. And then he whips around and he just bum rushes the attacker. And that to me feels so much more realistic. Like so many movies do like, oh, I shot him once with a nine mil and he went down instantly. That's not how it works unless you get just the most vital of vital organs. It can't happen. You hit someone in the heart, hit an artery. But but yeah, usually. Even with the heart, you got like five seconds before they're totally gone lights out but but yeah, here yeah. It, it like he hits him in some non-vital parts and it, the dude just whips around and starts tearing his ass open like it's it's really good and he shoots him several more times in the scene and he keeps coming mm-hmm. uh 
I, I like those kind of scenes where you see a more realistic side of it's shooting. messy. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very not, messy. All of the fights in this idealized. movie are messy, right? I look That's at a, like uh, some of these scenes where I, I forget, I, oh, it's the uh, the the vet that's getting the, the, like a birthday celebration or whatever later in this movie uh, where he gets into a fight with some guy who's dancing with a woman and he grabs the woman from her and he's like dragging her across the room and, and other yeah. people are trying to grab him and pull him off of her and that's just such a mess right yeah the, it the, feels the, real he's grabbing he got the he's got the woman in his grips and she's like you're hurting me he's like well try to take her from he's like daring like a very caveman kind of like yeah yeah it's and that was it, charlie those fight scenes are great well there's two there's the military uh, uh the veteran who does that and then there's also charlie who yeah hits on the woman at the bar uh i thought that was the one you're talking about i'm like i that came out of nowhere with charlie although charlie's pretty outside of the pocket um what's going on with the the night the the stripper like is he in love oh, with her diane or is he just trying to recruit her for his like uh, restaurant that he's that's his thing that he wants to open? Because uh, it's a good question. I understand like the plot of what goes on there, right? Like he he sees her, he thinks she's very beautiful. He he may or may not want to like actually hook up with her. He invites her out to talk about the hostess gig at his new restaurant, and then he stands her up. Because he looks around and she's like the only black person there in the village. Right. And, and he he's like, I don't want to be seen in this situation. Right. It's, it's a whole racist bullshit thing. But like mm-hmm. what what is his actual goal here? Is it to get a good hostess for his restaurant? Because I would think a guy who would stand up a woman because she's got the wrong color skin also wouldn't make her his hostess in the first place. It feels like he's just trying to get in her pants that's what it felt like she's beautiful but he's also he won't say it but he's also in love with Teresa. so like that is he because he won't say that's what i'm saying like i it's this why is he holding Teresa at arm's length is it because because his uncle thinks she's sick in the head and he wants to get this restaurant from the uncle and he's got to like he's got to make all that work out so the, the scene with his uncle where he finds out that his uncle disapproves um, mm-hmm. of the whole situation, but he doesn't know that, it, it, it the, you know, uh, yeah, you've never seen the movie you haven't. You're listening to spoiler section. Yeah. He finds out he's having dinner and like his uncle doesn't know that he's dating Johnny's cousin, but he makes an offhand comment about Johnny's cousin being like just, you know, she's she's got shit for brains or whatever. And uh, but he was holding her at arm's length even before then. But I don't yeah. know because like that that yeah. first scene that we where you're supposed to I, I I read behind the scenes of Martin Scorsese where they talk about that because this is an extended nude scene too where Charlie's kind of like looking at her changing through the windows and you can see her bre- her body and all that and then that she's also naked throughout there like rolling around in the bed and and I guess he was trying to sell their relationship but Martin being a young Catholic boy was very uncomfortable with the nudity and he. Uh, was it was just him, the photographer, the light person, and the lady who was like working on. Uh, there, there's something, some some woman that was working on a script, kind of punching with them. There's like four people in the room. 
with with the woman who's taking her clothes off mm-hmm. and i guess because of the limited crew that they fucked up a bunch of things and made like 75 to 80 percent of film unusable oh jesus and what he had left was the more aggressive kind of like you know him him tackling her onto the bed and you, you notice in that scene that there's like these weird cuts where it's like mm-hmm. they're kind of roughhousing mm-hmm. and then he's standing to the side and he makes finger guns at her and martin scorsese he actually puts a gunfire sound in the track and it like jumps around and maybe they just didn't sell the mm-hmm. romance part of it it's just like all the it, but it felt like a sixth grader pulling a girl's pigtails and like not really being into her but maybe he was super in love with her yeah somewhere along the the course of this movie i got the impression that he was in love with her maybe it was the beach scene maybe maybe it's something along those lines but but she wanted to take him away from this life and away from johnny boy and he was doing penance here right like that's the thing he's he's trying to keep his friend out of a bad situation he's doing his his street penance and she wants to remove him from that she's talking about this apartment that's up upstate or whatever maybe not upstate but uptown uh and and she's gonna move up there and she wants him to move with her and and i think that's why even if he was in love with her he's like pushing back on this relationship because he doesn't want to be taken away from the penance that he's doing here i think okay that i think that tracks with the themes of the movie okay um we talked a bit about what i, I want to talk about a couple of things i don't i don't understand in the movie or and maybe it's just pulp fiction stuff it's like but even Pulp Fiction, it's like, you know, you got a scene. It's like if a person says, well, I don't understand why Christopher Walken has his monologue about keeping a watch up his ass. Mm-hmm. Well, that sets up the stakes for why Butch is so maniacally obsessed with the watch, right? Sure. There's a couple scenes in here like, uh, was it Tony, the guy who owns the bar uh, yes. that has the pet tiger? Uh-huh. What? Is, is this, is this supposed dude. to be... Like the love that he has for this tiger, the only thing I can think of is supposed to mirror the love that Harvey Keitel has for Robert De Niro. That to it's love something thing. that is dangerous and, and to think that you have it trained or to think because it loves you mm-hmm. that it won't turn on you. Is that what am I but supposed if you to get pay out that of that? Off, uh, Tony gets his throat ripped out by this thing, right? That, like that's how you that's how you would pay that off, but they don't. But Robert De Niro gets his throat ripped out. Mm-hmm. So it's it's foreshadowing, uh, like, I guess. Yeah, like it's, I said, I, I don't hate it, but it is weird because there's a lot of shit that's just random. Like there's you know like um yeah. and there's some things that's like okay, like okay, I'm 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 going to expect a certain amount of racial and gendered and sexual slurring going on with the setting and the the era and all that mm-hmm. but even then like god going into like there's this one scene where a guy is like carving a swastika into the mobster's bar table and oh, like calls him that. over there to, you didn't see that mm-hmm. yeah it's just a scene where a dude's like he's like hey i'm trying to make a picture of you and they pan down and it's just a swastika carved on the table like a giant swastika <laughs> Like it covers the whole top of the tabletop, and the guy's what? like, "Hey, woo, yeah, woo," and I'm like, "What the fuck?" I didn't. I don't know. There's there's a couple things. I totally missed that. I must have been looking at my notes or something. 
Because there's a lot of scenes in this movie that, like I said, the, the weird stuff in Pulp Fiction, I think, does pay off. And maybe if I watch this as much as I watch Pulp Fiction, these would all connect as, as, as much. But I feel like there's a lot more of them just like Robert or Scorsese just fucking around at the camera. Like, you know. Yeah. yeah. See, seeing Harvey Cattell and Robert De Niro go see a movie. I don't know mm-hmm. that that connects. They're just going in to see a movie. And yeah, that's what they do. The friend's birthday party and all that drunk. It's like, that's just, uh, that's just as a vignette. Um, yeah. So the, the backdrop of this entire movie is this, uh, feast of San Gennaro. Um, that's, that's the one where in Godfather two, Robert De Niro executes, uh, the, the, the previous Godfather. That's the, yeah, this yeah. festival. The, same the festival. Is what mean, I'm saying. Nasty Godfather. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it reminded I when I first saw it, I was like, is this is this the Italian American day from the offer? What is this? Uh but but yeah, I did looked it up, Feast of San Gennaro. Um it, it's kind of a backdrop. There's this whole celebration the entire movie where everybody around them is celebrating and the whole town yeah. is into it and it permeates everything. Trying and to find fireworks this, to celebrate and Uh-huh. And then there's a scene later in the movie where they're in they're starting to get into hot water and they go to this graveyard to to duck out of it i think and in the windows of of this apartment building harvey Keitel's like looking up at the windows and he sees these people celebrating something it, it almost feels like it has like a latin flair to it i don't think it's the feast stuff that's happening but he sees these people celebrating but there are intercut like screams like bloody murder kind of screams happening in this yeah and i think he's doing something thematically with that too but i'm not exactly sure what it is were they not screaming because robert de niro was terrorizing them maybe i mean because I, I thought there's like scene where he was shooting guns it's very close to it and i and and here again i i need to watch maybe watch this movie again but like i at towards the end of that scene i got the idea that robert de niro was terrorizing a non-italian family that's living in their little so it's like it could be yeah so they just you know they were just the other so he's like shooting out their windows and throwing throwing cherry bombs at them maybe maybe I mean, he's a piece of shit i i uh mm-hmm. I, I did i did think that was that's that got a chuckle out of me because well, growing up in indiana uh we were a state that banned fireworks that left the ground so okay. the idea, like the mythical power of outer state, out of state fireworks, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, oh, my God, Jimmy's uncle, Jimmy's uncle drove to Illinois and got a whole trunk of the good stuff, you know? Yeah. Like how that was in this movie where the guys, you know, comes like, hey, we're looking to buy fireworks. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's like, are they good? It's like, hey, kid, they're from Maryland. You know they're good. It's like the the, the myth uh-huh. the myth of the out of state fireworks. I, are there states in the union that ban particular types of fireworks now? Because like I feel like that's oh, less sure. of a thing nowadays. You can just get whatever fucking artillery rounds you want. Uh, uh, I I don't I don't know if it's an all out ban, but I know California has some laws on that. You don't say. Yeah. I uh I <laughs> it's causing fires and shit. That's, it's funny because you can, out there. You can see like pretty in the statistics of like states that rescind their bans, like they're the amount of um, uh, the, the fingers and toes that get blown off each year dramatically increases in that states. But that like that's just the way we like it. 
uh, <laughs> we're a little insane here in America. Like we we will gladly sacrifice thousands of fingers and toes every year for a little bit bigger boom. Apparently, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so we talked about the tiger. Talked about the out of state fireworks. There's another kind of. I thought it was a fun scene. Um, it's after the shooting of David Carradine. And everybody's got to flee the club because the cops are coming. They shut down the lights. They go out the back door. Everybody splits up. Some of the guys get into Michael's car. Yeah, I think it's Michael's car um, to escape, including Robert De Niro and Harvey Keitel. And then these two other guys who were just in the club, I guess, or maybe just on the street. From, I don't know. From the village. Yeah. I, uh-huh. Yeah. Like a, and like they a taxi. pile in the car and it very quickly becomes apparent that at least one of them is gay but flamboyantly so and he cannot he cannot hold his tongue and he's seeing guys out the window that he's attracted to and he's leaning out and shouting to him i thought this scene was pretty hilarious both because of how over the top this dude is but also you know these tough macho gangsters reaction to it they're like hey get this guy out of the car <laughs> like yeah. oh my god he's giving us a bad name here i thought it was really hilarious I, I wonder like, if he leans out the way hey baby got any meat <laughs> I wonder if there is a because I couldn't help but notice that when De Niro got shot in the face that like (laughs) speaking of doing too much like his physical reaction getting shot is to stick his head out the window stick his whole body out the window and flail (laughs) around and scream and Uh like were they I wonder if there was like some kind of like parallel he was drawing between maybe the guy hanging out the window yelling and screaming and Robert De Niro hanging out the window yelling and screaming huh i didn't think about that it, i think possibly. about it it was staged and shot very so again i i'm it definitely was. gonna be watching this movie a couple more times um one thing i thought was interesting is the voiceover there's a lot of like blade runner-esque mm. narration where harvey Keitel is talking about the things he's thinking and the things he's worried about and his religious dilemmas apparently that's all martin scorsese oh yeah Mm-hmm. And it's a deliberate attempt to give a separation between Charlie's thoughts and his actions, which I thought was kind of an in, okay. in like, like an interesting storytelling technique. It's funny because I'm not sure if it even worked on me because I did not realize until I read the behind the scenes that that was a different voice. It wasn't this. It like yeah. Martin Scorsese does a decent Harvey Keitel, <laughs> or Apparently. Harvey Keitel does a, def- a, a decent Scorsese. Yeah, I didn't realize it either uh, until I started reading and listening to some interviews um it it's weird because you I, I kind of expect it to be harvey Keitel. i like these are the thoughts that he's struggling with why isn't it Keitel? there's like a conscious like you know a, like a, almost a jiminy cricket type of effect having that separation but again i it was lost mm. on me because i there's more truth in it if someone aside from him is saying it or it's like more of a con. It's, it's it's more of a conflict between the mind and body. You know, mm-hmm. this could be because several times in the movie, I feel like he says, "Yeah, the priest told me this. The priest told me that," and they they seem sort of strange, right? This this could be almost a stand-in for the priest for for God, telling him that you you know you can do all the penance you want in church with your hail marys, but where it really matters is the streets in your home. Yeah. We'll be right back with more Bald Move after this brief pause. We 
try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them, or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members, with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is reward unto itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked. And they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. And now, back with more Bald Move. Not to say Martin Scorsese is God. Come on. He makes good movies. See, that's the kind of shit that uh, gets you sent straight to hell, Marty, thinking you're God. <laughs> yeah, that's blasphemy, I believe. Uh, I think I've about talked through all my feelings on this movie, but there's one thing that stood out to me that was kind of funny uh, in a low-budget filmmaking kind of way, and it's when Michael... Well, okay, maybe this maybe this leans into something bigger, too, but M- Michael, um, the guy that Johnny Boy owes money to... He try, he's trying to make deals in the background constantly, right? He's trying to get his hands on things that might be of of less than legal status or less than amazing quality. And he ends up getting these lenses, uh, what he thinks are lenses for cameras, a whole bunch of them, like crates of them. 
uh, and they turn out to just be adapters for lenses, and they're not actually worth nearly as much as he thought. The and, Japanese instead of German. Or, yeah. uh, and, and he didn't know this because he doesn't know anything about them. He just knows they're worth something. Um, mm-hmm. I, I find it hilarious to see that like plot points are hinging on things that they would just have around on set. Right. Like you could tell this is a low budget operation because that is not it, it feels too real world. Like, what do we have here that he could be buying and selling? I don't know this fucking right. adapter for this lens. Yeah. Throw it out there. Because like, what would this guy know about adapters? Right. Yeah. Or lenses or any of that shit. Uh, and, and who does he know that's actually trying to get it? it? It's like he doesn't live in those worlds. See, I got to me. This was like uh, in season two of The Wire. Uh, was it Nikki uh, Ziggy? It was Ziggy, who like could do crime, but was bad at it. And like the idea that this guy like stole a shipment that he thought was high end camera gear, and it's mm-hmm. just low mm-hmm. quality. Or that he was the middleman that like, you know, he he was a fence yeah. that bought like a guy sold him's like, oh, these are high end German camera lenses they are worth a couple hundred bucks a piece. And they're just Japanese adapters are worth like a buck. Um, it is. I felt as it's and, uh, who was it that was actually there trying to push the product off? It was Michael. Was it's it Michael. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, that was telling them Michael, like there is an essential truth of him being a jerk off. Uh, like, yeah. The reason that he's the last person that Robert De Niro has loaned money off of because everyone else is smarter than him. And that's mm-hmm. why it really set him off when Robert De Niro came at him like that. There's an element, you know. Yeah, certain amount of truth to it. Element of truth that he's kind of dumb. Uh, his crew sucks. Uh. <laughs> and, and the larger picture, if you kind of zoom out, you know, if you take that lens and you strap it to your camera and you zoom out... Uh, it, it shows like the the scrabble that is these people's entire lives right like the yeah. heap that they're all fighting in yeah it's the churn uh, yeah it's the churn it's like you gotta be one step ahead of the worst guy in the bunch otherwise you're that dude uh and there's like um i don't know it really contributes like those little scenes that mean nothing kind of in isolation that really contributes to the feeling of just the life that they live right where it's dog eat dog and man you make a couple of bad moves and it's just it might not be over for you but you're not you don't have the status you used to no that's the thing like i one of the interesting trivia things i read that i thought was interesting is that roger corman you know purveyor of of Mm -hmm. crazy shit wanted to make this for Scorsese because like Martin you just gotta this get you gotta make this a black film it's gotta be all black yeah, guys I want it to be black exploitation film but it's something that like I I've, I don't know I've I've this is something I have realized because uh, I I came from a very poor co- part of the the country um pretty backwards part uh where it hasn't doesn't have a lot of economic opportunity and all that but it's not a big city it was all in the rural right and then I've since, you know, in the last 10 years, I've kind of lived in a major metropolitan city and it's a lot more cosmopolitan, a lot more diverse, but also plenty of people who are just being left behind. Right. Oh, yeah. And it's like the fact that you could take a movie that's written about poor Italian youths trying to scrabble in their neighborhood and you could seamlessly cast it with black people and find it like equally compelling that direction, I think says something 
interesting that like there is so much commonality between those experiences just like roger ebert you know mm-hmm. uh his experience of growing up in downstate illinois mirrored uh, martin's growing up in little italy right there's something fundamentally uh, about uh the behaviors of people that don't have a lot of opportunity to advance sure. you know you start calling outside the lines you start taking bigger risks when those fall out you you give mm-hmm. in to despair and nihilism and there's the, the aesthetics of it are different, but like this, the feeling and, and the behaviors and stuff are very, very similar. Um, yeah. You just kind of hope you're not the person who bears the brunt of the consequences of that life. Right. Yeah. And the thing that's wild to me is like a white person from like my small town who grows up around crazy ass behaviors that they see all the time will go to like Indianapolis and like see black young black people engage in that and they're like jesus christ black people are crazy but sure, when they sure. see that happen in their community they're like oh that dude those those dudes are crazy yeah yeah but i just said that was something when i was read that it's like god there's there's something extremely uh you know obviously there's a lot of things different about those experiences in terms of like what societal structures put them in place and how easy it is to escape from it and da 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 but like there is something very just just like you know and i feel like man that's that's one of the keys to unlocking uh, the, the, the reducing racial tensions is like, and I, I think it's the, the the burden is on the white folks is to realize is like we're really not that different, you know. <laughs> sure. And yeah. Like when you when you see people acting crazy, like do we have to ju- do we have to generalize that to everyone's race, or can we just be like, oh, there these people are in crazy situations and that's making them crazy in recognizable ways that we we can easily see when it's when the people look like us and we want to other eyes when they don't. But yeah, uh, I mean, the things yeah. that general the, there are things that generally motivate the human species, and that applies across the entire spectrum, right? I mean, and food. The, and the meat. essentially, I want to continue living, and I need the means to do that. Yeah, and I'm be, I'm denied that. Now what? Uh, right. And that, and that <laughs> this was almost a black exploitation film. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I watched an interview with Scorsese where he talked about that briefly. Um, he he was he was very like jovial about it like he he brought up the topic and he said you know and then i got out of that meeting and i i said i'll think about it because you never say no in hollywood and then i thought about it and no He's, corman's like i'm like yeah i'll give you 300 like this will fully fund the thing you just have to cast all black yeah yeah and he couldn't do it and i see why right like he doesn't he doesn't necessarily equate those two communities he doesn't have the love for for those people like he has the love for this italian and american yeah. uh you know first generation second generation immigrants. it would probably society. feel like a story that the serial numbers were filed off of and then for sure yeah yeah, yeah. you, you it, can't it just one-to-one transfer this script uh but but yeah there are absolutely similarities there mm-hmm I think I'm about done walking the mean streets here. Yeah, me too. Uh, if you want to hear us talk more about Scorsese, you're in luck because next week we're checking out Killers of the Flower Moon. I've been, this is another one. I feel like there's, there's been a lot of this of lately. It's like uh, things I've been following for a long time have come to fruition. Uh, and this is, you know, like Oppenheimer, something I was really looking forward to. And here's the other one, the other one that I was really looking forward to Killers of the Flower Moon. It's going to be a first mm-hmm. run movie out next week. Uh, if you're a club member, you can hear our full thoughts. If you're not a club member, you can hear our general thoughts and some upcoming trailer talk and reviews. But uh, yeah, if you want more Scorsese, uh, it's it's coming down the pike. 
Otherwise, yeah, we'll uh, we've got some little prestige television coming down the prestige pike uh, the next couple of months. If you want to try to find out what we're going to be doing and uh, where we're at in terms of prestige and pulp, best place to do that is on social media. Everywhere at Bald Move except for TikTok at Baldest Move. And if you'd like to join the club, get access to our full thoughts on Killers of the Flower Moon, etc. Uh, check out our club at uh, support.baldmove.com. Get ad-free feeds, extra bonus audio content, and more. That's going to do it for this week on Prestige. Until next time, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.